0: You're listening to It Between the Lines, where we have real discussions about real issues in public safety.
1: Welcome back to our podcast. I'm Megan with the Georgia Public Safety Training Center, and today we're joined with Jonathan Jones and also Angela Bowen from the Georgia Public Safety Training Center. Do you all want to share a little bit about yourselves and how you got to the positions you're in today?
2: Sure, I'll start. So. I started my career in Clayton County in 1988 as a part-time telecommunicator, worked my way up to a position that's commonly known now as an operations manager and training coordinator. In 2004, I had the opportunity to come to the training center to coordinate the basic communications officer training course, and over the past 16 years have progressed up. I'm now the manager of curriculum services in our instructional services division, which is responsible for the Between the Lines podcast. And uh, I also have served several years on the Georgia Association of Public Safety Communications Officials and am currently serving as the second vice president of ABCO International.
0: My name is Jonathan Jones. I started my career in public safety with the Athens-Clarke County Police Department in 2006 and uh, worked my way up through the levels. When I left there in March, I went to the Georgia Emergency Communications Authority at GEMA as an Emergency Communications Field Coordinator. Um, also just recently elected as president of Georgia APCO, and I'm just glad to be here with y'all. Angela was actually one of my instructors at BASICCOM way back when, so um, it's good to be here with y'all.
1: Well, thank you for joining us today. And we're excited to talk about the Telecommunicator Emergency Response Task Force, and I know that you have a little bit of background information for us too, Jonathan.
0: Yeah, so the Telecommunicator Emergency Response Task Force, in short, real simple, is basically mutual aid for 911 for years and years and years, there was mutual aid programs and processes in place for every other area of public safety. There really wasn't one for 911. So TURT was created to kind of bridge that gap and create someone, create a way for 911 to call when they needed help.
1: And what type of things did they call for?
0: So typically TURT activations are going to be for events in your center that overwhelm your workload.
1: So like hurricanes?
0: Hurricanes, tornadoes, disasters, anything that's an ongoing thing, long longer term, that's going to create an overwhelming impact to your center and is going to overwhelm your staff.
2: Yeah, I believe they actually had some TERT deployments out west with the wildfires in Washington and Oregon recently as well.
1: Did Georgia send people?
0: Not for the wildfires.
1: In order to be a TERT member, what are some of your qualifications?
0: So your qualifications are you have to, the biggest piece of it is you have to have the support of your agency. Without having the support of your agency, you can't really, it's hard to be deployed somewhere and go help somewhere if you don't have that agency support. Uh, as far as training, you have to have your basic communications certificate here in Georgia. That's just one of the requirements here in Georgia that we've kind of added that we wanted people to have. And I guess real quick, just to go over, there's different ways that different states do it. So I'm going to review the ones that, the way that we've done it here in Georgia. So for us, you have to have your basic communications certification here from JIPSTIC. You have to take IS-144, which is the telecommunicator Emergency Response Task Force Basic Awareness, which is a FEMA online independent study. You had to have IS 100, 200, 700, and 800. And those courses are for the just to be a team member, a TERT team member. If you want to be a team leader, you have to go on and have all those requirements. But in addition, you had to have IS 1200, which is uh, the TERT team leader course. And that's another FEMA independent study class as well. And then you also had to have IS 300 and 400.
1: Okay. What's the difference between a team member and a team leader?
0: So your team member is going to be the person that's going there, basically doing the work of a communications officer in another center. They're going to be taking the calls. They're going to be dispatching the officers, doing everything that they need there to help them. Your team leader is going to be almost like the supervisor of that team. Okay. So in every deployment we have, we're going to have a team leader that oversees that and manages that group. And then you have the team member that's actually doing the work of the communications officer. And that's not to say that the team leader is not going to be doing a communications officer job and sitting there dispatching and call taking alongside with them. They're just the ones that's kind of our point of contact for that team when we send them out somewhere.
1: Did you serve as team leader previous to working with GEMA?
0: I am certified as team leader, and I've gone on some in-state deployments as team leader, but I haven't gone out of state as a team leader.
1: Okay. Can you tell us about some of the in-state ones?
0: Yeah, so the most recent in-state that we had, um, I didn't go on it, but I can speak to the members that went. It was Hurricane Michael here in Georgia. That was October of 2018. We had 13 that were deployed from five different teams, and it was basically the various areas in South Georgia that were hit hard by that storm. We pulled together teams from North Georgia, uh, Metro area, all that, and sent sent them down there to help through that.
2: So, Jonathan, explain, if you will, to the listeners a little bit about how TERT – is managed. I know you mentioned that other states do it other ways. So can you talk to us a little bit about the national structure of the emergency response task
0: forces? So on the national level, we have a an organization called NJTI TERT, and that's the national again, the National Oversight Board for for the TERT program. And that
2: stands for National Joint TERT initiative. Yes.
0: Again, that's the national oversight program for that. There's two co chairs, one's appointed by APCO and one's appointed by Nina. And then there's a committee board which is made up of representatives all over uh, the country. We've got different, it's broken down in different FEMA areas, and each FEMA area has a representative on it. And I currently serve as the, the member for, for our area down here on the national board.
2: And just for some of those who may not know the acronyms we're using, APCO stands for Association of Public Safety Communications Officials. It's an international organization with over 35,000 members. NENA stands for the National Emergency Number Association which also has international members, but they're primarily based here in the United States, about 15,000, 20,000 members, I believe.
1: And some of our listeners may not know what you're referring to when you say TERT. Can you just clarify?
0: So TERT is the Telecommunicator Emergency Response Task Force. And again, it's going to be your 911 mutual aid program. So it's going to be the group that 911 can call when 911 needs help. If they have an overwhelming event, they need assistance to get their telecommunicators breaks. This is going to be the group that's able to deploy and, and do that.
2: And I think it's important also to note that TERT does not deploy just because a center is shorthanded. As we know, that's a perpetual problem within 911. But this is for major events, typically declared disasters. I know that sometimes there are informal deployments for, say, a funeral or if there's a tragedy within the center. But within the state, we understand there's the NJTI for the national governance. Talk to us a little bit about how the state is governed and how it works.
0: So on the state level, our program, the Georgia Turk program, is sponsored by APCO and NENA. They support our program. We include the president of Georgia APCO and the president of Georgia NINA on, on everything that we're doing with TERT. But the Turk program itself falls under the Georgia Emergency Communications Authority at GEMA. Michael Nix, the executive director of GICA, another acronym for everybody, which stands for the Georgia Emergency Communications Authority. He is the state coordinator, and I am the deputy state coordinator, and that's how our governance structure works here in the state. We did that for a very, very important reason, and that reason is when we're responding to an out-of-state deployment, there's a formal process involved that we touch on a little bit later, but it's called EMAC, the Emergency Management Assistance Compact. And all requests from out-of-state have to go through EMAC. So when we got our first request for that, we had to kind of learn on the fly of how to respond to an EMAC request. And that was just one of the lessons learned, that we really needed to have a close working relationship there at GEMA to work through that process. Um, so that's, that's kind of why we, we went that way with it.
2: And, two, I, I understand that, you know, with all these different states doing things all different ways, is there any sort of document that guides the deployment or the training or how TERT teams are organized.
0: Yeah, there is a ANSI standard out there. It's basically it's real short, it's just the standard for telecommunicator emergency response task force. You can find that on the National TERT website. You can also find it on our website at GeorgiaTurt. It's GATERT.org. It's got that standard listed there. And it does exactly like you said, it does outline the requirements and, and a lot of the things that need to be in place for a Turt program.
1: And I'm sure a few of our listeners are wondering if I am deployed for TERT, does my agency get reimbursed in any way, or how does that affect the agency?
0: They do. That's a very good question. So for out-of-state deployments, for instance, Hurricane Irma, when we sent people to Florida for that, there is a reimbursement process for presidentially declared disasters. And again, the importance of EMAC comes in there because you have to follow very stringent process through EMAC to be eligible to get reimbursements. It's very important to know that you can't just, as much as you want to, you can't just get in the car and go help somebody. You have to follow the process to, for, for so many reasons, for liability, for reimbursement, for accountability. You have to follow that EMAC process. So, yeah, there is a process for reimbursement. Um, again, that runs through EMAC. There's a lot of documentation that goes into that that we handle on the state side, such as capturing your salary information, capturing your fringe benefits so that we can accurately get your agency reimbursed for, for that, for your time there.
1: And talking about you can't just get in the car and go help. So even if, say, that we have 10 members and you know that somebody's going to have to be deployed, all 10 members don't go at the same time, right? right? Who do they hear from to know whether or not they go?
0: So the, the first thing that we do when we, we may even begin to think that there's going to be a need for TURT or we may receive a request from out-of-state for turd due to a weather event or whatever might be happening, we do what's called a pre-alert, and it's just a quick notification out to all the TURP members and the 911 centers in Georgia that says there may be a, a need and please get all your documentation ready. If you got go bags and stuff that you usually take with you, make sure that that's checked off and good to go. So that's the first step is you get kind of a heads up that, hey, there may be a need coming for a TERT deployment. Also, really important piece to remember is if your agency applies to support TERT, and you want to sponsor your members to, to be on the tour team, there isn't a mandatory requirement that if we reach out to you and say, hey, we need to send people to Florida or we need to send people to Alabama, there's no, you don't have to do that. If you're short-staffed or there's something going on there at your own agency, depending on what it is, if it's a regional event, your own, your own center may be impacted and you can't, people can't leave home if you've got to take care of home first. So that's an important thing to remember is, is we appreciate your supporting the program. And we certainly need your members to respond if they're able. But if they can't, you're, you're able to say no. And I, I just can't send anybody right now.
2: Okay. So, Jonathan, tell the listeners what type of, if they were to join TERT and, and their agency support them and they were deployed, what kind of conditions can they expect to work under? I think a lot of people may be under the impression that they're get put up in fancy hotels and eat the best food. Can you go into <laughs> sort of what they should expect if they're deployed?
0: Absolutely. It's without a doubt not the comforts of home. You're not going to have all the uh, luxuries of your home agency that you work for. Uh, depending on what kind of events come through and, and what kind of event you're deploying to, you can be sleeping on an air mattress in a in the floor of a training room somewhere. It's just, it's just really depending on what, from a logistics standpoint, they're able to get. But again, high-stress environment, you're going to be going into a center where you're going to receive very little training, and you're going to have to kind of pick up on the fly. And, and be able to, to get in there and jump in and help them. Very, uh, just very stressful environment. So be able to work well under stress. Again, be able to, to not have the luxury camping experience. It's going to be a little bit, uh, you're going to be roughing it depending on where you're going. When we sent people out to, I think, one of the deployments in South Carolina, they actually couldn't get there because of the roads. Every road they ran into, they kept getting diverted another direction, and they'd go down that road for 30 minutes and find out it was closed. So we actually had to get the that state's highway patrol to help get them to where they needed to be.
2: So if I remember right, TURT sort of really got going back after Hurricane Andrew and Hurricane Katrina. And, you know, I've heard stories of Hurricane Katrina where folks were deployed into New Orleans and couldn't even shower for a week, and they were eating military MREs, and as Jonathan said, is sleeping on the floor wherever they could find an empty spot. Yeah. So.
0: It's just important, again, just to know that when you sign up for this, you're, you're signing up for that. You're signing up for... You're signing for rough up to p- help. Yeah, exactly. You're signing up to go help people that have had their homes, some of their homes may not even be still standing. Right. So that's just real important to remember that the environment's going to be rough, but you're there to help people in their biggest time of need.
2: Something else I think is real important um, to kind of keep in mind as well, and you kind of mentioned it, is when the Turk teams go into these centers, they may be relieving people who don't even know if their home is still standing or where their families are. What's the mental and emotional impact on both the receiving center, if you will, when the TERT team shows up and they realize that they've got some relief, but also speak to what do we do to support our team members from an emotional and mental health side?
0: So that, again, is a very good point that you bring up. One of the biggest things that we run into in deployments, and we certainly, telecommunicators, you know, we've all been there and we understand it. when a TERT team comes in, the initial reaction is the people don't want to leave because they don't want to let that go. They want right. to stick there with it, and they just, even though they know they have help there, and it's not an issue of they're not confident in the people there. They just are so invested in what they've done so far that they just can't let it go. But that is why the team's there, so that they can go check on their homes. They can check on their family that they haven't seen sometimes for five, six, up to 12 days on some of these events. Again, like you mentioned, a lot of people don't know the conditions of their homes. They've left and found that their roof was ripped off or there's a tree on their house. Because
1: most of the times they're already living there, right? When these events coming, the actual telecommunicators are staying at the center.
0: Exactly. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're not really, you can't get up and walk out when right. you've, you've got something like that that hits your community. One other thing that a lot of people don't think of, we think about the stress of what they've been through and the stress of the work they're doing. And we touched on the stress of going and finding damage to their home, but there's also a huge financial impact that, that really hits them that right, maybe not right there in that moment, but they find that every single bit of their food's gone because their power's been out. And when you talk about replacing all of, everything in your refrigerator, including your ketchup and mustard, <laughs> condiments and all that, that adds up in, in addition to whatever damages that you've got to got to work on. So there's a lot of different stress involved, not just from the work side of your center, but from recovering from that event that's come through your community.
2: And I think a lot of people are under sort of this false impression that financial resources just flow into these communities and are immediately available, which we know that, you know, anything where government bureaucracy (laughs) is involved is going to take at least a week, if not longer. What resources are available for specifically telecommunicators who experience a catastrophic loss.
0: So I know y'all have touched about it on your podcast before, but there's definitely peer support teams. That's something we highly recommend ahead of the game, figuring out who your peer support contact there is or who your critical incident stress management contact there is. Do that. Don't wait until after the event comes through. Go ahead and make those contacts and get arrangements made for those. Several deployments that we've sent members to in other states have had A lot of different things, small, really small things that you don't really think about, but it's gone a long way to to help people get through that stress. Bringing in comfort dogs, bringing in pets to just for people to sit there and and help get them through that moment. Bringing in massage therapists. Massage therapists come in and sit there and do chair massages while they're working. Just little things like that that really help get them through that event.
2: And what about financially? Is there any resources on, say, the state level if an event were to occur in? the State of Georgia, do APCO and Nina have any sort of financial funds that can help folks like that?
0: Yeah, so through that, we have APCO has something called the Sunshine Fund, and that's something that we certainly can, can help with. The great thing about the 9 1 community is it's so, so much a tight knit family and so much a tight knit community that a lot of times when something like that happens, there's already people putting things together. Uh, you're finding GoFundMe's that are being shared, you're finding people that are putting together care packages and gifts to send to them. But yeah, we have the Sunshine Fund. And
1: um, and how would they donate to the Sunshine Fund?
2: I know that at the national level, anyone can send a check to APCO International to the Sunshine Fund, and it'll be deposited directly into there. The Sunshine Fund is actually a national program, and then each chapter has their own version. At the national level, the Public Safety Foundation of America, which is a subsidiary of APCO, helps to fund the National Sunshine Fund. And then at the state level, again, I know we have one longtime commercial member who is very, very supportive of the Sunshine Fund, also referred to sometimes as the George Murray Fund, and she donates a lot of times just from, if she comes in to a little bit of extra money, she'll send that to the chapter treasurer to, to donate that money. And then the Sunshine Fund is specifically for telecommunicators who've had a catastrophic loss or a death in the family at the national level, I believe that they will donate, depending upon the situation, up to $1,000 per event per person. And I know in in the state of Georgia, when I was still on the Georgia board, we had a a member who lost her home in a fire and and we donated some money just to, you know, it's it's not a lot, but it just does help them maybe with a night in the hotel, like replace the food replace medicines or even just get clothes to wear for a couple of days until you can get on your feet and get other things moving and I
0: think that's that's a good point is when you're when we have those things in place we know that they're not going to cover everything that they need but we know right. that it's going to help them get back to the to where they can it's going to help them get back and running and, and get back to some normalcy
1: And how would they request it? Or does the national chapter just pay attention to what area it happens?
2: No, we obviously, with everything that's going on, especially this year, would be completely overwhelmed. I know Southwest Louisiana, just that one part of Louisiana has suffered two major hurricanes. And, you know, if we were to reach out to everybody who was affected, number one, we would probably miss somebody. But number two, we would be out of money before we could shake a stick at it. So typically what happens is someone hears of a person in need, they hear that, hey, this person has had a loss or this community, you know, these dispatchers in this location lost their home in this hurricane. And then they will contact. Typically the best way is to contact their executive council member on the APCO side and someone, the Nina board on the Nina side to reach out and to say, hey, is there any way you can help us? And then the executive council member can take it to the chapter board, which is typically on the state level or even up to the national level to ask for help. But let's go back to the mental health for our TERT team members. When they come back from a deployment, do they do debriefings or like critical incident debriefings? Or what do they do to just make sure that they're not also getting overwhelmed?
0: So the main thing that we do is, again, the TERT team leader is the one that we're we're really communicating through. And and that's one of the things is we're, we're constantly communicating with them, asking them what's going on. Do they have any unmet needs? When they're deployed, we do something called a daily report, and they just fill out a very basic summary of what they've done that day, and then at the end, there's a section for unmet needs, and that can be a bunch of different things. That can be something they need right then and there while they're in the other state or in the other, at the other agency if they're in state, things that they don't have there that they need that we'll try to work through that local contact or try to get them, but it also means things down the road suggestions for the program later on. We've seen a lot of actually really good things come through that where they've said, Hey, we need to do a challenge coin for, for turt and just different just different things that we can use to improve the program. But again, we're constantly in, in contact with that team leader. We're checking on them, making sure that they don't there's nothing there they need again while they're deployed and you you bring up a very good point. What about when they come home? That's kinda of like the I compare that to the end of the event for the agency they're helping. They need help after that when they realize what they've gone through and it starts making impacts on them. So we do have resources here in the state. We have the State Office of Public Safety Peer Support um, that we can help with them. We've got different peer support teams throughout the state that we can help them with so we we can get them connected to those resources as well. And I think it's important, again, I know we've touched on it. Y'all have touched on it on your podcast before, but just self-care, just making sure that you're taking time to cope with what you've gone through. Going and helping another agency like that is is certainly a a heroic action, but you have to, when you get home, you have to take the time to make sure that you're looking after yourself. Yes. You're coping with what you've dealt with. You've seen a lot of stuff. You've experienced emotions of the people that you went and helped. The other really interesting piece of TERT is every time they come back, they formed a bond with the members that they've helped. And that's a great thing. You've, you're making new friends there, but it's also an emotional thing where you come back home and you're remembering that they're, back, they're going, still going through a tough time and you're back at home and you're not really, you feel like you're not doing anything. You just got to remember that you were there with them through their, one of their darkest times. And uh, just, again, forge that relationship, build those friendships, and start reaching out and checking on them uh, regularly. Even when you come back home, make sure you're reaching out to them and checking on them throughout that.
1: And as an agency that has been through the worst event, how do they reach out and ask for help?
0: So the, the agency that's requesting help, I can really only speak to our state here in Georgia in our process, but, again, because it's different in every state, But here in Georgia, the agency, hopefully the director, but some kind of executive level member of the agency will reach out to the ESF2 contact at GEMA and tell them we need the biggest piece of that is we need to know what they need. We don't, while we know you need help, we need to know specifically what you need, how many people, exactly what, you know, it may not just be turd. You may not just need people there helping, but you may need help with infrastructure that's down. Mm -hmm. You may need some kind of asset from the state. We need to know exactly what you need. When it comes straight down to TERT, we do need to know how many people that you think you need there. Some very basic information, what kind of CAD system you're on, what kind of radio system you're on. If you have an EMD program, what program that is. Just very, very basic information just to help us get the right resources to you.
1: And is there an email where they do it, or how do they contact that person?
0: So they would, the easiest way and quickest way would probably be 1-800-TRIGEMA, which goes to our state warning point. And they can quickly connect them to the right, right contact there.
1: And you said like yeah, try
0: like T-R-Y? 1-800-T-R-Y-G-E-M-A. And that, that's a 24-7 thing. Right. So okay. that, that, that's why we suggest that is because, it's again, if something happens at 2 o'clock in the morning and you realize you need help, we don't really want you waiting until 9 o'clock the next morning to tell us, go ahead and call so we can get the wheels in motion to get the help to you. Right.
2: Jonathan, do they need to go through their local emergency management agency or can they call directly?
0: They need to go through their local EMA contact if that's, if that's an option. If they can't get in touch with somebody or their EMA contact is you know out of pocket somehow, they still can, can call and tell us what they need, and we can, we can still try to, to work through that process. But the best, best practice to follow is to contact local EMA. Okay. But again, and just a quick reminder, your local EMA isn't always going to know what you need because they're obviously handling their end of it, mm-hmm. so make sure you're very specific with them about what you need when you're requesting that.
2: Yeah. And I think just from experience, the clarity of communication is critical. I know during Hurricane Michael, I spent a couple of days up at GEMA assisting with that and just making contact with one centers around the state. And we would get information from an EMA contact in that county that was conflicting with what the people were telling us when we talked to them one-on-one. And a lot of people don't realize, but Hurricane Michael actually took out several PSAPs for a while. They didn't have nine one one lines. Some didn't have power. And probably the worst thing that that I heard on that was someone recognized my voice and just said, "Miss Angie, we just need food. We've ate all the food out of the vending machines, and we can't get out to get anything. Nothing's open." But their EMA contact didn't know that because they were over helping citizens on the other side mm-hmm. of the county. So. Just that critical clarity in communication is is going to make a huge difference.
1: So you were talking about how to request HURT, what to do. Maybe talk about how they should also have that conversation with their staff.
0: Yeah, so uh, again, we realize that you're in the middle of a a disaster, and obviously your time is stretched thin, and you you don't have a lot of time. But one big important piece to it, in addition to getting the information that we need to get a team to you, the basic information that we collect, is to make sure that there's a clear communication with your staff. Make sure that they know that the team's coming in. We don't want the team to just show up and walk into your center and take it over. That's not what Turk's for. Turk's not there to, to fix anything that was done wrong. Turk's there to support you and get you through that overwhelming event and get a break for your staff. And that needs to be communicated to, the, to your telecommunicators there. Let them know that there's a team coming in. The team's there to relieve them. They need to go home and check on their family. As hard as it's gonna be for them to unplug that headset and go home, it's what they they have to do. Because again, we've we've talked about self care. We've driven that in and that's something that they have to practice when Turk gets there is they have to disconnect. They have to spend time with their family. They have to go home and check on things. They have to get sleep. You can't function without sleep. And these people, I mean, they've been in one of these events, they've been awake for a very long time. So they need that break. They need to go get a warm meal. They need to take a shower. They need all the basic needs of, of anybody. They need to take care of those, and that's what Tur's there to, to do. So, again, just having that conversation with staff that there wasn't, it's not because of a failure. It's not because anybody was inadequate. It's because they need help, and the director that's asking for that help realized that and was getting them the help that they need.
2: Okay. Thank you for sharing that. And, you know, it really is weird because when you are going through an event like that, I know as a communications officer, sometimes the only place I felt in control during a bad event was at work. And so now to tell me that now I have to go home and handle my personal business, it was it was a gut punch, yeah. you know, and um, as much as I needed to do that, it just felt like, you know, I wasn't able to fulfill my duty. Yeah. It's just a very common emotion, I think, that communications officers feel is, you know, we're not out in the field where we can physically help people. And I think the time for me in my career where that was most evident was during uh, September eleventh, two 2001, where we were seeing these images and we saw these police officers and firefighters responding to New York City and Washington to help, and we're just sitting there in a comm center not able to do anything. And, you know, take that and now make that an event that's occurring in your own community is even worse. You feel like you have to be there to help them.
0: It's kind of like a major event at shift change. You don't want to walk out because you don't. Yeah, you just don't. You're invested in that event emotionally and, and from a work standpoint, I and mean, you don't want to walk away from it. You want to right. sit there until it's over, and you don't want to leave that console until until that event is ended. Unfortunately, when an event like this, it's not going to end in two hours or three hours of the next day. It's going to go on, and I think that's an important piece to remember: is it's going to be a, there's going to be a long recovery process, and for that to happen, staff has to take a break and get out and take care of themselves to right. to move on past it.
2: In preparing to go on a deployment what type of preparation, other than the training and, and approvals, what kind of preparation does a Turk team member or team leader need to do, say, after the pre-alert and once they've been deployed?
0: Yeah, so we recommend having a, people call it different things. People call it gear bags, go bags, whatever you want to call it, but just a bag that you've got basic necessities in. And when I say basic necessities, you touched on one of the perfect ones of a, a center that you spoke with that didn't have food. And we certainly recommend keeping snacks that, that don't go bad in two weeks. Keep things that are going to stay good for a while in your bag. Have your basic toiletries, everything that you're going to need. If you were sitting at home and got told that you had to pack up and go somewhere for two weeks at a moment's notice, everything that you could pack in 30 minutes to get on the road is basically what we tell you. Your shampoo, your soap, anything, toothbrush, anything that you need to, to go somewhere um, on a short notice is what we'd recommend you put in there. And then from a work standpoint, of course, we recommend notepads, pens, paper just just basic office supplies as well
1: what type of dress code do you require
0: your work uniform in in most most cases if you're able to do that now we realize that you for you may not have seven work uniforms to wear for a a 14-day deployment so i think it just depends again on what environment you're going to and needs to be there needs to be some level of comfort there obviously you need to be able to to be comfortable, but we also want it to be professional because you are representing the state of Georgia when you're going somewhere else. And their agency, too. And their agency, exactly.
2: Jonathan, this year we've had a lot of hurricanes. I don't think I ever remember having this many in my whole life, but several have hit the southeast United States. Has TURT deployed this year and how many times?
0: They did. They deployed uh, once this year to Baldwin County, Alabama, uh, which was kind of an interesting Interesting story there because the team that we sent to Baldwin County, Alabama was actually from Baldwin County, Georgia. So we liked that connection. We thought that was pretty neat that the Baldwin County, Georgia team was going and helping the Baldwin County, Alabama nine-to-one Center. And speaking of Baldwin County, Mandy Patak is the director there, and she is deployed on every single one of our deployments that we've had. She's one of our team leaders, and she's been to both in-state and out-of-state deployments. So she's kind of one of our team leader experts and is certainly learned from every single one of them and has brought back a ton of feedback for us to help improve the improve the program and prepare our new members for their deployments on what they need. So shout out to her for everything she's done for our program. She's been a huge supporter. I believe um, almost every single one of her staff are TURT certified. So that, that was a really, a really cool thing for her to be able to deploy and help on. And she's always willing to go. If she's able, she's getting in the car and going. So um, Mandy's been a great member for us.
2: How many terp members does Georgia have?
0: I don't remember exactly, but I know that we've got we just crossed over the eighty thresholds. We've got eighty four eighty five members now. Okay. Uh, we've had several new applications come in lately that have been approved. I know that when we went into hurricane season we had seventy nine and now that we've now we've got eighty five or eighty six. So we've got people that are still still joining and and uh, still continuing to grow the program.
2: Do you have representatives from the majority of agencies around the state? Could you use more members? Absolutely.
0: We definitely need more members on the southern part of the state. Uh, We've got a lot that cover northwest, northeast. Metro area has got a good solid set of members, but we need more in the South Georgia areas. And South Georgia is going to be an area that a lot of times needs TERT, so we definitely need members from South Georgia.
2: How does someone, if they want to become a TERT member, How does their agency show support for them, or how do they sign up to become a member?
0: So the first step is uh, we have an online database that we manage our TURT program through here in Georgia. They can go to gaturt.org and click the Join tab, and it takes them to the online portal. First step is the agency has to apply as a sponsoring agency. They go in there and fill out basic information, their address, their agency name, point of contact. Once they're approved as an agency, their members can sign up. When the members sign up, they start a new application and they fill out their basic information, again, name, contact information. They have to upload their certifications. It won't let you, the portal won't let you submit an application until you've satisfied the minimum requirements. So they have to put their experience, their certifications, upload all of that. Once their training is confirmed, a notification is generated to the agency point of contact. Usually it's the 9 director. And the 9 one director can review their profile and decide if they support them to be on the team or not. So. They can review the information they put in, make sure that it's, it's good to go. If there is a member that they don't necessarily support because of whatever reason, if they're not ready, if ultimately the director has to sign off on, on them participating. So we, we involve them in that process. They get to, to actually have the, the final approval on them submitting their application. Once they submit their application and the director signs off on it, it comes to us, it comes to me and Michael there at, that manage the TERP program at JICA. And, again, we would give it one final review and make sure that everything looks good, and then we confirm their membership on the team. And we've also got a Turk Facebook page, so you can go on Facebook and search Georgia Turk and see pictures from deployments and a lot of different information on there as well.
2: And that's just G-A-T-E-R-T, or is there a dash?
0: The website is gaturt.org with no dash. is all together.
2: And on Facebook, what is it?
0: It's just Georgia Turk. Just search Georgia Turk, and it's on there. And you also can click on the link on our website for Facebook, and I'll take you to it.
1: Okay. All right. Well, thank you all so much for joining us today and talking about TERT with us. And hopefully we'll have you back sometime soon.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Thanks for listening to Jipstick Between the Lines. You can find us on Facebook,
0: Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. If you'd like to reach out, email us at learn at gpstc.org.